Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, claims of the paranormal. No, we take part ourselves. Yep. When they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher. And I'm Carrie Poppy, and I have the novel coronavirus of 2019. Seems like it's novelty or so. would be wearing off. I know. It's 2023 as we record this, and sometimes I'm like, COVID-19, who are we kidding with this? You're getting old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but what what Ross... happened? Where did, where, where could you possibly have gotten COVID again? Ross, I had COVID in October. Yeah. Come on. But last weekend, you and I went to the Conscious Life Expo. Hey, the Conscious Life Expo. One of our favorite places to get material for this show. Yeah, it's funny because I thought, oh, well, we've been there now multiple times. So, you know, probably good not going to the Conscious Life Expo. But then you see who's going to be there. And they've just pulled the best and most interesting people from around the world. And they're bringing them to L.A., How could we not go? Oh, man, we've got some great stories from Conscious Life Expo, but we also have an infection. So we are recording separately today. So I I have a confirmed COVID infection from this hippie expo. You're okay, though, right? It's not bad. Yeah, yeah. My case doesn't seem to be too bad. This is my second time, and the first time was really rough, and this time, eh. Okay. It's just unpleasant. I did have a cough, and I, I went to go get a test and thankfully it came back negative okay good yeah drew feels sick too but he's tested twice and negative so far my work offers these free tests you just drive up it's not too far away they swab your nose for you and then they send you results and it's it's all taken care of for you and every time i go there i expect it to be all boarded up but there's still just one person sitting there in a trailer Uh, actually no there were two people but anyways. Okay. I'm we, glad you clarified in case both were listening. And yeah. And was like, oh, I bet I'm the one he This missed. guy's a liar. I said <laughs> hi to him and then you went out and swabbed his nose. Well. Uh, but no, we're really back here on the Ark. The Ark encounter, but we're recording separately from our homes. Yeah. Two by two. We rarely do. So Christians who don't believe in evolution have set up a roadside attraction Based on the Noah's Ark study, study, (laughs) based on the Noah's Ark story in the Bible. (laughs) And you have been walking me around this ship mentally, the ship of my mind, and showing me all of the signs there. And this will be the last episode on board the Ark. Wow. But not the Ark encounter. I know some (laughs) of you are saying, please let this go on forever. I love living on the Ark. Others of you are saying... I'm good. Let's wrap it up. So we've been looking at kind of what's left in the storytelling. And here's what we got for you. We're going to have another episode on some of these homeschooling classes, Mm because I'm sure you want to know about teaching science from a biblical worldview. And you Mm -hmm. probably really want to hear about forensic hair microscopy. That's going to be good. No idea what that has to do with the Ark Encounter. I can't wait to find out. So good. And then there's another important story we want to tell you about a rally with Kirk Cameron about not only reclaiming your manhood. Wait, that doesn't sound right. But also against abortion, uh, which is a big deal for this crowd. Great. And a film that he premiered at the Ark Encounter 
anyway, so we've got some cool stories to tell with that. But then we're going to have some fun bonus material for those of you who want to hear more about the arc. So, yeah, bonus material will be coming up. But, you know, you might want to think about uh, maybe joining us during Max Fun Drive to hear a little more about that. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, we'll be telling you a lot more about all of this. But anyways, there is a rainbow at the end of the tunnel. Unless you want to stay in this tunnel, baby. <laughs> you don't have to jump ship. All right, Carrie, you ready for this? Yes. Yes. Take me back in my mind to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, a Ken Ham production. Last time we had come out of the Ice Age exhibit, heard about Bill Nye's debate with Ken Ham. Right. By the way, I meant to mention last time that Donald Prothero, who we had previously on our show and who lent a reaction for the last episode about flood geology, was one of Bill Nye's coaches in advance for the Ken Ham debate. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, he worked with him on prepping for certain points that creationists would try to throw out and making sure he had all the right talking points to counter them. Yeah, that's cool. Nice. All right, so we're heading next door into the Babel display. This is devoted to the Tower of Babel and this incident in Genesis 11, which is short enough in the Bible, I think it's even worth sharing. So... Hey, let's do it. Okay. Because as with all of these other stories, there's really not much there, and they've made a lot of hay out of this. I'm showing Mm -hmm. Carrie this section from the Bible, and it's literally nine verses. Yeah, pretty pretty short. By the way, this is 70 years after the flood. Okay. So picture that. Not much time, right? Uh, Yeah, no, that's not a lot of time. Okay, so apparently there's a lot of people already after 70 years, this massive smackdown and punishment, but here they are. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that, (laughs) that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city. This is always interesting when God shows up in person, but... Yeah, yeah. The Lord came down to see the city. Hmm, what do you got over here? And... (laughs) Sorry, I'll stop editorializing. And the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Wait, this is why? Okay, all right, go on. So (laughs) you're already seeing problems. Yeah. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. What do they mean that is why it is called Babel? Okay, so the Hebrew word used there is Belal, which means to jumble or to confuse. Oh, okay. So it's like a little bit of wordplay, maybe. This is where I also have to apologize for spreading folk etymology in a previous episode. I had said that Babel, the word that we use in English, like babbling, you're babbling, Carrie, stop it. Yeah. That that comes from... The Tower of Babel. But no, as far as etymologists are concerned, it most likely comes from like a European word for baby talk. 
and has uh. probably been influenced by the similar sound and association with Babel, where language was confused. And it may have come from apparently an Akkadian. There was a Babylonian tower that was called Babelim, which means okay. gate of God. Anyway, so there's a few different uh, language connections there. Gotcha. I apologize. Okay, but this story, oh, yes. you're forgiven. We all forgive you. Thank Don't you. we, listeners? Yes. Thank you. Um, okay, but this story, I always thought that they were building a tower to heaven and that was too proud. And then God was like, now nah, I'm going to give you a bunch of languages so you can't even talk. Mm-hmm. But as you were reading this story, there was a line that said something like, these people are too successful and working together too well, so I'm going to give them different languages. Yeah, they could accomplish anything at this rate. We got to stop this. Yeah. <laughs> That's so weird. Now, what is God's deal in the Old Testament? No he doesn't kidding. want anybody to go to school. He doesn't want anybody to talk to each other. <laughs> no collaboration. Because they're going to be too successful. Yeah, what a weirdo. And I mean, sure, it helps if you have the same language. It makes it easier to collaborate. But also, we've built, I would assume, much higher structures since then. And God hasn't felt the need to come down and be like, well... Here they go again. Yeah, let's right. uh, let's T- building too tall. Yeah, cut that out with the Burj Khalifa. We're gonna like confuse your language again. Right. So how strange. In this exhibit, they had signs, and this was new to me. They seemed to be implying that the punishment was for them not spreading out to fill the whole world. That's what God was upset about. <laughs> Okay. Like, hey, I told you to be <laughs> fruitful. Human beings aren't domineering enough. <laughs> right. I need you to, yeah, go out, uh, subdue the world. And so they were being punished for not having done that. We both just read the text together. I I don't feel that's particularly justified. No, the opposite is. Because that's saying, like, humans should be more productive like to the point of taking over everything and it even starts out saying as people moved eastwards they're moving they're on the move but they decided to build a nice tall tower no got smacked down (laughs) too tall so strange so i'm showing carrie in the exhibit here they have this diorama through a window and if you get up close to it you see the building of the tower of babel which also may be that's it just yeah that's (laughs) yeah they just got like the first like the base of it, and it looks like it's getting a lot narrower. So it's not going to be that tall of a like pyramid-like structure from how Who they're envisioning it. painted this? <laughs> what did they think the point of the story was? Oh, and this, this is in the, 3D, too. This is a diorama. So you guys, this is not tall. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because you're, you're right. It's a good point. It's about the height of maybe five humans standing on top of each other. I have walked further getting out of the metro <laughs> than this Tower of Babel. It is not that far. It's like 200 steps. Though it does say that like he kind of put a stop to this before they really took off. But yeah, sure. it's not that tall. Still. For sure. Why would God even be impressed? This is an artist's rendering. Right. It's almost like it didn't happen. I don't think this happened. So we've got this, it's a lovely diorama, but yeah, maybe not too impressive. This is something that they want to, in the future, build at the Ark Encounters to have a reproduction of the Tower of Babel or build it up Mm. as much as they can. 
Yeah, I just think it's funny that we have Babel and Babylon in the Bible. There's a lot of very similar sounds going on. <laughs> That's so true. And then, of course, there's Babel 2, Pig in the City. <laughs> that took me a moment, but I get it now. Oh, that's funny. I forgot about that sequel. It's not good. Uh, you know, our Lord and Savior, Jesse Thorne, mm-hmm. loves Babe 2, Pig in the City. Really? Yes, which I... He's my friend, so I guess I defend his honor, but it's a bad take. I love Babe, though. I love the first movie. Oh, yeah. Babe is a fantastic film. Yeah, we have a film consultant who often lectures at the studio, and she'll use... Babe 2 is kind of her example of like the worst way to make a sequel. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, we should put her and Jesse in a room, watch them fight. Just duke it out. Yep. Yeah. Bobette, Jesse, fight. All right. So then they have this sign about the origin of languages. And again, they have to tie it to the two worldviews. You have the evolutionary worldview and you have the biblical worldview. So they yeah. say, we've worked it out from the genealogy in Genesis 10. And we think there would have been roughly 90 people groups that have mm. emerged in the mere <laughs> 70 years from the ark. <laughs> Give me a break. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of those like, well, why don't you just listen to the words that came out of your mouth? (laughs) Exactly. And they feel like, well, this very closely associates with what language experts tell us are like kind of the number of root languages that we have. Whereas the evolutionists, they should believe that everybody originally did have one language and that it also branched out. Well, first of all, evolutionary theory doesn't really concern itself with language acquisition. It's a separate study. Sure, sure. But even so, no. Right. Yeah. It could have developed independently multiple times. But also, even if we can identify sort of the base ancestral languages of our current languages, there's still an understanding that that will go back farther in history. So I'm not sure what point they're trying to make, thinking that the biblical account just somehow accounts for the data better than the quote-unquote evolutionary model of language. Yeah, I'm looking at this chart. I don't really even follow why they think this is a knock. I just don't think they understand what the secular understanding of language development is. Sure, sure. Yeah, I wonder how much of this suffers from them just not even knowing one evolutionist to (laughs) read over their drafts and give them some feedback. That's a funny thought. Yeah, what if they'd brought in a token evolutionist just to give them feedback on all their signage? Yeah, yeah. Probably would have helped. Yeah, do I want to offer them that? I guess. You know what? Yeah. I'd do it. Actually, I'm going to say yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll do it we'll for do you, it Tim Chafee. If you need us to review your signs, just listen to our episodes. We already did it. <laughs> okay. Table of Nations. Yeah, this is just a boring chapter of Genesis 10 that talks about so-and-so begetting so-and-so and kind of spreading out post-flood into the various children and grandchildren. Oh, so look at that. They're all men. They've. Huh. <laughs> yeah, those are the only ones who get names and are worth talking huh. about. So there's a couple names there that are of interest, and a lot of people wrote us about this after our last episode, because we haven't mentioned the curse of ham. This is a Mm. famous concept that came out of, again, a skeletal story in the Bible, and it's sort of relevant here because they have some signs talking about the diversity of humans and how we're all one race, that the Ark Encounter seems very proud of themselves for saying, well, we're not racist, and we don't understand how you are, and they'll 
mostly point at evolutionists and say, you're the racist ones, as if like racism didn't mm. exist before 1859 in the published of <laughs> Origin of Species. But then they have like this little chart here showing us how different skin types could come from these very limited progenitors, Shem and his wife, Japheth and his wife, and Ham and his wife. So the curse of Ham has to do with, of course- Which is like, I'm looking at like a flow chart of these drawings of these biblical characters and mm-hmm. then actual human beings of different skin colors below them. Mm-hmm. Oh my, okay, okay. They've made a little punnet square that, you know, like you would normally see for- Mendel's peas, you know, like these are the wrinkly ones and these are the smooth ones. These are the yellow ones. These are the green ones. The little allele charts. Yeah. They've admittedly simplified skin tone just to say, look, you can get a lot of variety from a limited number of ancestors. But I think it bears going back to Genesis 9. And again, this is a very small story right after they come out of the ark, literally like the next thing after establishing the rainbow covenant We are told, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. Now, that's weird. I thought he was a shipbuilder, not a man of the soil, but okay. Oh, you're right. They should have used this. They should have made him a gardener. Plot hole. Maybe he just was a multi-talent. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, We've all been there. <laughs> the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. You Guys, you got to go see this. <laughs> Dad's naked in there. <laughs> Everybody come, Dad's nude. But Shem, <laughs> there's very little entertainment. All the animals are gone, but Dad is naked in the tent. Let's go. <laughs> but Shem and Japheth, took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. Now, Is this written by one of the sons? This feels very thou doth protest too much. (laughs) Totally. Now, wait, okay. uh, Do you remember this episode in the Bible? Does this ring a bell? No, no, not at all. Okay, what do you think will be a reasonable reaction for Noah, who we've established as an upright and righteous man. What should he yeah. do when he wakes up and sees like, oh, shoot, I passed out drunk and naked and someone covered me? Wow. Okay. Does he wake up by himself or are his sons still there? You would assume he wakes up by himself, but also we have his words recorded. So I guess someone was there. Oh, with touche. A, uh, Unless he wrote it. Yeah. With a papyrus. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair. Okay, so it's just him and the cameraman. I think that he's going to wake up and for no clear reason be pissed off. That's what I think is going to happen because I know my Bible. Yep, you but, got, yep. Okay. Okay. Oh, oh, you got but I more? Think a, well, I think a rational response would be more like, oh, this is nice. Yeah, thanks. Uh, whoever covered me, thanks for that. I'm a little embarrassed that I was nude, but this is nice. (laughs) Yeah. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, so someone told on him, I guess, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. And I know what you're thinking. Who's Canaan? Well, (laughs) that's the son of Ham. So Ham saw him naked, went and told the brothers, and then his son gets cursed as a result for this. 
Oh, he's not even part of the story. He's not one of the guys who brings out the robe. No, like we know nothing about Kanan's involvement in any of this. So he's just like an innocent bystander. He's like, wait, why am I being cursed? So really, because that, yeah, the Bible loves to do this. If you do something bad, your kid gets punished. (laughs) Yep, that's right. Hasn't Mm -hmm. changed. So poor Kanan, you can invent things that he did, but we have no indication that he did anything deserving this. So really, it's the curse of Kanan. So then Noah also says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Kanan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem and may Kanan be the slave of Japheth. Kind of an overreaction. <laughs> you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I was naked. Like it... A little embarrassing, but what? You're cursing somebody for generations? Yeah. Now... One of my hot takes is if someone helps you, you should not curse them and all of their progeny. Yeah. Well, in this case, the ones that helped him got spared, but it was the one who just came in, didn't do anything, looked at him naked. That's oh, the one. Oh, I missed that. His okay. son okay. is getting his son is getting punished. Not him. Oh, I see. I see for, <laughs> for standing idly by. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah. So yeah, make it that oh, what like you will. It's like the last episode of Seinfeld. And that it doesn't make sense. No, uh, they all go to jail. Uh, New York City has just implemented a Good Samaritan law. Mm. They oversee, I forget what, I want to say a mugging. <laughs> and since the whole joke of the show is these four characters are awful, none of them do anything. And so they all go to jail and then say goodbye to each other and part on the subway. And it's famously anticlimactic. Mm. <laughs> but okay, anyway, same kind of thing here. People punished for not being good enough or or their sons being Mm -hmm. punished. This tiny passage right after the flood and kind of the last scene that we get with Noah before we find out that he lived to 950 years old and then he died. This has been the basis of this curse of Ham. And the idea is that, and the Bible doesn't explicitly say this, but the idea is that because he did this horrible thing, his this is skin be racist, isn't it? Oh, no. turned black. Yes, it is. No. As racist as you could possibly be. And okay. Because it says, like, oh, okay, so Mormon. the son will be the slave of all of the other brothers. Mm, right. The idea is that this is why slavery was instituted and therefore right. it is okay, biblical standards. I mean, okay, to its credit, answers in Genesis thoroughly denounces this, says it's not biblical. I'm sure Ken Ham's not wild about a curse called the Curse of Ham, but they try to say the curse was just for Canaan, not necessarily for his offspring or, you know, generations to come. But Does it actually say in the text, though, that his skin becomes dark or something like that? It doesn't. Okay. Okay. Later supposition, but... Oh, okay. That's why I think a lot of people wrote us because that previous display over near where their living quarters were implies that all black people, as well as Asian people, come from the mating of Ham and his wife, Mm. Kezia. So it's like kind of consistent with the curse of Ham a little bit. But yeah, just a crazy little story in the Bible that's been used for awful purposes. Wow. And so they do have a display titled, Was the Bible Used to Promote Racism? 
And they admit, sadly, some professing Christians have misused passages of the Bible to spread racist ideas, such as slavery based on a person's skin tone. But that's over now. Yeah, that's right. We disagree with it, and so it shouldn't be held against us. The drawing on this sign is a slave auction. Yeah, uh, I mean, is this their most recent example of the Bible being used to promote racism? Yes. Cool. Good, 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 good. Yeah, it all ended after that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For yeah, sure. sure. Thank you, Lincoln. Thank you. <laughs> so At all, Link- Lincoln and others. <laughs> <laughs> That's as explicitly as they handle it on the Ark Encounter. They don't even mention the Curse of Ham on the Ark Encounter, but you can find articles on Answers in Genesis where they do this little bit of fancy footwork. There will be a whole exhibit coming up where we talk about other flood myths, but they're able to name here three other Babel-like myths where you have like a a building followed by a confusion of language. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Two are from the Americas, like First Nations people, and Mm. then one from Burma. So that's interesting. I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder why those would... I'm guessing they independently developed, but I'm asking myself why. They even address one of the potential reasons for that. These legends do not seem to be the result of missionary influence, as skeptics often allege. Oh, okay. Well, that's Uh, different, but okay. If they were truly handed down through the centuries, then we have some striking corroboration of the biblical account. You know, all I know about them was presented to me by the Ark Encounter, so I'll take Mm -hmm, that with a grain of Lot's wife. (laughs) That's interesting, though. Now I'm curious. Let me look into that. I'm I'm curious whether those independently developed or... (laughs) I'm tempted to believe the people who are quoted in disdain on this Mm -hmm. sign, but Mm -hmm. I'll look into it. Okay, let me know if you find anything. But right next to it, there's a sign that I totally agree with on the Ark Encounter. It's titled Aliens. It's titled Bathrooms. (laughs) I agree. Those are bathrooms. (laughs) Aliens and the Pyramids. Essentially, they're just saying, hey, ancient people were capable of doing stuff like this. You don't need aliens to explain the pyramids. Uh, Right. I agree. So that's speaking back to people like the folks in Ancient Aliens, the show Mm -hmm. on the History Channel, who claim that the pyramids are so complex that it's impossible that the ancient Egyptians were able to make them themselves And so that means that aliens must have come down and helped to build the pyramids. Exactly. They disagree. Ross disagrees. I keep an open mind. (laughs) Okay. Well, at least I have a strange bedfellow here. Uh, They (laughs) also have this exhibit showing towers from around the world. So they show various other structures that are pyramids or pyramid-like or stepped shapes from all over the world. And for them, that's just further corroboration that early man did these things and also that there was probably some influence like they think that the people who built Babel might have then gone on to build other similar structures elsewhere and for whatever reason God didn't stop them I gotta say this is weak sauce yes you don't get to defend the Bible by saying stairs exist (laughs) no but what no what if they go down carrie (laughs) oh man eugene scott so you said weak sauce i said weak special pleading to a claim in this next exhibit right next door called ancient man brilliant or brute i think they're gonna say brilliant you are correct and therefore you are brilliant 
Oh, thank you. I guess I'm ancient. <laughs> so the point they're making here, and I agree with it on a certain level, they're saying that ancient man was not like some kind of groveling creature who is intellectually incapable. I would agree with that, that anatomically modern humans, if they were raised in the society with us, could do just fine, would have pretty much the same aptitude, would be able to learn the language and drive a car and all of that stuff. Yeah, there's a certain level of achievement just from being in an interconnected world that has societies in progress. But there's something to be said for standing on the shoulders of giants as well. And I feel like that's what they're really missing here. It's like, sure, yeah, but if I myself with my genetics, you know, I was born 8,000 years ago, I'd have a lot less to work with. I'd have a less quality under oh yeah they don't believe in 8000 years ago if i was born in 4000 <laughs> whatever <laughs> if i was born in their timeline i'd have less to work with i wouldn't have been inculcated from youth with all of this understanding of how the world works they're trying to say that evolutionists are just saying that you know caveman was brutish and simple ah i see i see they think that we're under the misapprehension mm-hmm. that our forebears were too dumb to do all this stuff. Right. And they agree. When in actuality, it's that like generations build on each other. Yeah. Yeah. So of course we are more advanced than the generation before us, but only thanks to them. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like that distinction is being uh, glossed over. So their whole point is man started out brilliant and sure there were cavemen, but they were living at the same time as other humans who were building cities. They do some math showing just like population expansion and how you could quickly populate the earth. So they were like trying to work out saying before the flood, how many people were we talking about that got wiped out? And they show how, and this is a good point with exponential expansion, if you had a 1.1% growth rate per year, you would have a population of 147 million. And if you ramp that up to 1.4% growth per year, then you'd have a population of 19 billion. So, mm-hmm. all right, point taken. You can produce a lot of people if you're willing to get past this whole crazy genetic bottleneck of two people populating the earth. Yeah. Also, I mean, is that accounting for like what we would expect of deaths per year? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if they really showed their math on that. That's funny. They even have a little equation down here to show the formula they worked with. I'll give them credit that they worked that out, but also they believe that people lived absurd lengths of time then, so that would throw off the calculation as well. So right next to it was this sign called Technological Resets. That's the one that I thought was super weak special pleading, and that's the idea that well, we probably just forgot metalworking, and that's why you have all of these ages of records of people not having metal tools uh, (laughs) before your Iron Age and then your Bronze Age. The flood probably just buried all of our metal sources, and so we had to rediscover that. Uh Uh-huh, sure. What? Oh, yeah, so wait, there should... Why aren't we looking for, like, metal shit in all of their rock formations? They keep getting mad at the evolutionists about yeah 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 go find a pizza cutter in there and get back to me yeah if noah and his sons knew the art of metal working then you think they'd go out and smelt some metal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they also have posters dedicated to some wonders of the ancient world the great pyramid stonehenge the maya calendar 
Sure. All great achievements. Ooh, I like that art on that last one. Yeah. Ooh. ooh, ooh. That reminds me of the inside of that ball ride at Epcot. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like the history of human education, Mm -hmm. kind of. Mm -hmm. I love it in there. Anyway, it all looks like this. Yeah, absolutely. Reminds me a little bit of James Burke's connections, like the story of the one discovery on top of another that added up to the modern world we live in. Mm, That sounds cool. What's it called? Connections. It was a a book and also a TV series, and they're both really cool. Oh, neat. Oh, you'd like them too, because it was all made in like the, I don't know, 70s. Okay. uh, Just as a side note on this, I noticed that when I was doing the little number code thing, they had the number zero represented. And I was thinking, wow, zero itself has quite a storied history like the first recorded zero in Mesopotamia, I looked this up, was around 3 BC. Oh, wow. Yeah, and the Maya independently developed it in 4 AD or somewhere around there. I mean, I assume that's late, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Zero was a- I'm not thinking about this weird? Okay. Yeah, zero was a very late forming and kind of foreign concept and then had immense power. But yeah, it didn't really spread around until like- the West until like the 1200s. Hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. That feels like a metaphor for something, but I don't know what it is. I have zero ideas. But <laughs> again, I thank my forebears that I can even conceive of such a thing. Sure. All right. So next we get into Flood Legends. Okay. Oh, this room looks cool. Yeah. This is a pretty room. It's all like kind of teal colored with sort of golden maps and displays there's a big map in the back that shows different craft that are described in various countries as part of their flood legends this is something i'd always wondered about as a young creationist because they would mention that other people had flood legends and i always thought well who and what are they and how many are there and it was always this kind of ambiguous number in my mind so they say here that there's something like 200 flood legends worldwide Oh, okay. They even have these little books that you can come flip through, kind of these really thick pages that you can flip over. And they have 18 different specific ones that they mention, and they give a brief synopsis. So here's an example one of a people group from Canada. It says, angry with the giants, God commanded a man to build a large canoe to survive a coming flood that covered the earth. An otter and a reindeer were sent out to determine if the water had subsided. Cool. An otter and a reindeer. That does sound Canadian. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guess better than a dove and a raven for that part (laughs) of the earth. And sure enough, like as they show these different stories from around the world, they all are variations. Some of them will mention rainbows. Some of them will mention collecting animals and some won't. It it definitely is interesting and it makes you go, okay. And, and you know, I'm trusting their representation of these stories, probably leaving out crucial details here. But still, I think it's well established that you have flood legends around the world. That's interesting, though, that they're somewhat similar i'm writing it down just like babble stories Mm -hmm. i see the point they're making here Mm -hmm. and i'm asking myself like okay this doesn't win me over but what is my counterpoint to that Mm -hmm. and i'm i'm not sure which is a good place to be i I, yeah yeah, i want to look it up and understand what happened there that's interesting yeah and i would say the i mean the common secular understanding is that 
floods are disastrous for people living in the same area and usually next to a water source. And it feels like their whole world is drowning and they have to have a way to kind of leave that reminder for the people who come next that, hey, every now and then you got to watch out for a ton of water. Yeah. But the part about like, and -and so-and-so the lone man Mm -hmm. was told ahead of time that the flood was coming and he survived. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe this is just my being immersed in psychology right now brain, but I wonder if it could also emerge because of the relatively common but low incidence of psychosis among any Ah. human group. So no matter what disaster you hit, if you look backwards and say, well, who Mm -hmm. called it? Mm -hmm. Which one of us called it? Right. There's going to be someone who called it. We still do that. This guy predicted uh, that Trump would win the election. Right, right. This person saw the stock crash coming. That's going to be somebody and not necessarily because they had any wisdom or technology just because Mm -hmm. of there were so many people guessing so many things. That man Um, on the hill, he was yelling at us. He was right. And psychosis is, you know, relatively common. Mm -hmm. And this was a time when we weren't getting very many vitamins and things, all the things that protect us from psychosis. So I wonder if you're just always going to be able to find some guy who was like, oh, I talked to God. God actually told me about this. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. They do address, again, that same factor that we talked about with Babel, that maybe missionaries helped give rise to these various flood legends because they mm. come and tell their stories. And yeah, then, that'll do it. Yeah. That's and, like their whole thing. <laughs> right. So, And there are examples of this, of Westerners coming to some isolated group, telling them a bunch of stories, and then subsequent Westerners coming and hearing similar modified versions of what the first group told them. They acknowledge this is a possibility and that it might even explain some of these cases. They're willing to concede that. Yeah, I mean, you guys are missionaries telling these stories to people. Oh, yeah, loudly as they can. Right. But they counter that, well, one, some were written before missionary influence. Two, there are many differences between the details of these stories. And then three, you have a lot of flood myths, but not as many of other stories like Jesus or even the Tower of Babel, I would throw in. Like other stories don't seem to be as well preserved as this particular flood one. So yeah. I think you're right. This is something where you have to ask, like, why does this feel like almost a human universal? Yeah, that's really interesting. So they start out with this big sign that says, Did the Bible copy from ancient myths? And they write, Critics of the Bible often claim that the biblical flood account was copied from ancient Babylonian or Sumerian flood legends since these writings predate the time of Moses. So they acknowledge that there are Mm. older written records than what we have from Uh, the Bible. Okay. Hear this little bit of logic. (laughs) Okay. However... It makes much more sense to believe the biblical account reveals the true history of the flood, while the legends tell a distorted view of the same event. Why? Why? <laughs> yeah. Why? Yeah, I don't know. That's what we have to ask. Oh, t- oh I thought why oh, they- was rhetorical and they were about to answer it. Actually, okay, they do offer a why. Okay. Number one, since the Bible is God's word, it is accurate in all that it records. Not limited to matters of faith, but also every subject, including history. Number two, 
only the dimensions of the biblical ark provide the ideal size, strength, stability, <laughs> and comfort for a ship built to protect the people and animals during the flood. I love that comfort is a necessity. <laughs> And oh, my God. Okay. Number three, the Bible does not localize the event like other legends that describe structures common to the region. Interesting. Okay, yeah. Incredibly weak. Agreed. So the 900-pound gorilla in the room is the Epic of Gilgamesh. That is... Oh, we were all thinking it. Thank you, Ross. You're the welcome. The 900-pound gorilla in the room. Yep. We said it. The Epic of Gilgamesh. So, the Epic of Gilgamesh. I don't know what that is, but absolutely, I was thinking it. Well, we talked about it in our Billy Carson episode because he had this whole like Babylonian creationism account based on the Epic of Gilgamesh. Not only is it the oldest of the flood legends, but it is the oldest story period that we have preserved from humanity anywhere. Oh, wow. Okay. And the recordings of it that we have date back to the 18th century BCE in Sumerian cuneiform, but the tradition likely goes back even farther to like 2100 BCE. Whoa, what happens in it? I'm sure I asked you this the last time you told me, but what happens in it? Yeah, okay. So there's kind of two versions because there's more complete versions later Okay. that are written in Akkadian. So you get kind of like little split versions of the story. But the idea is that Enlil, the deity, destroys the world with a flood, not because humans are evil, but because they've become too noisy. They're just like keeping him up at night. They make too much noise. Got to put an end to this. So he's like the awful neighbor who poisons the dog. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And much like... God in many instances in the Old Testament, there's sort of this council of gods. It, it was even funny when we were reading about Babel that he kept saying like, oh, we must put a stop to this. And you have to ask, well, who's the we you're referring to? And Leel was not the only god. He did this in concert with the other gods. They were like talking, yeah, we've got to get rid of these humans. And so Ea, one of the other gods, warns Utnapishtim. That's the Noah equivalent in the story. Utnapishtim. Okay, Mm-hmm. and gives him instructions to build a boat. Sounds familiar? Wow, yeah. And the design that they describe actually works out being a larger structure than the Ark in terms of like oh, square right. footage available. And they, oh, I see now why this is the elephant in the room. Uh-huh. And he instructs Utnapishtim to bring seeds of every living thing, which Noah didn't even get that instruction. That's smart. But also bring animals and craftsmen, Mm -hmm. and gold and silver. Got to save some of that too, some of that metal. There's only seven days of flooding in that story. And then the rest of mankind is destroyed, like everyone who's not on that boat. But they even send out a dove, a swallow, and a raven later to like test when it's time to come out of the boat. So yeah, lots of similarities. It's far older And so it is almost certainly the real story or the original story or at least the older of the two. Oh, so that's the answer to my question. Yeah. Right? That's why there's a bunch of flood myths. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because that's a truly ancient story. And the Jews probably heard it in Exile in Babylon. Now, I mean, it might not explain ones from, say, the New World, you know, people who had split off. 12,000, 14,000 years ago. We might might have to explain that. Okay, well, back to my theory for that. Okay. So pretty fascinating stuff. 
and I was really enjoying the room and reading about these uh, various legends. But then on the other side of the room, they have recreations of these various boats. And so I'm showing Carrie pictures of these arcs. One of them is this Epic of Gilgamesh cube-shaped arc that was also Ooh. like given in cubits. Yeah. Weird. So it's got like... Not a good boat. <laughs> yeah. Certainly not comfortable. And they dock at points for not being comfortable. Part of it would be underwater or, you know, a good chunk of it would be underwater. It's just a box. Yeah. A giant box. And then you've got the Bible's version that looks just like a miniature version of what you're standing in. Then they've got the Vanuatu tail. They've brought in a large canoe, and they say, problems. No tree is large enough to hold all the people and animals. A canoe That's would ridiculous. quickly be swamped in the flood. Yeah, <laughs> They've got another double raft design from another legend. And then they have one that's an offshoot of the Gilgamesh epic, but taken from a much later Akkadian tablet. This is fucking cool. There was a cool, I want to say, PBS special on... Noah's Ark, and they looked at this version of the legend and found people who make these kinds of boats from reeds and tar and tried ah. to see how big they could make one to sort of approximate this. So yeah, what we're looking at is sort of like, imagine like a wide bowl, but the top has been filled in as a solid structure. And there's a little like kind of house popping out of the top of that flat space on the uh, top of the bowl. Yeah, it's a cool yeah, design. Yeah, if a sphere were not empty, if a sphere were like a hemisphere, shot straight, straight through with mm-hmm. cement, it's half of that. Yeah. So they then kind of work out what the square feet would be on these various ones. So the one we're looking at, oh yeah, coracle. That's they say it's a large coracle. I think that's the name of that type of boat. Did we say device. this and then on top of it, there's like a whole building Well, in the middle? Yeah. And yeah, that's probably just like a, I don't know, one room hut. It gives like entrance to the inside probably. Ah, okay. Yeah. It's like they invented an island. Yeah. That's it cool. It is a really cool. I agree. I think it's the most interesting of all the designs there. Maybe just because I'm really used to Noah's Ark. But they work out the square footage. So these are the three largest, the Akkadian Tablet one, the Gilgamesh Epic one, and Noah's. So for the Akkadian Tablet one, that's this kind of hemisphere bowl thing that we're talking about. That would be 38,000 square feet, whereas Noah's Ark has 110,000 square feet, whereas the Epic of Gilgamesh giant cube has... 291,000 square feet, so more than Mm. two and a half times that of the Ark. So it's interesting. And then they have this little display that's playing like a video that loops, rating all of these vessels on size, strength, stability, and security. And I think you can guess which one wins their prize. Only because of its creators, I'm going to guess the Ark. Yes, correct. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so how are they dealing with the Gilgamesh one? Why is that one not better? Because it holds more. So the problems they list for this one are lighting and ventilation for lower decks are a problem. Mm. There would be tilting and rocking in the waves that would make the voyage virtually unbearable. But come on. If, okay. If, if you can have God bring all the animals to you, God could also give you a not bumpy ride for seven days. <laughs> That's true. And also all of these sound fucking unbearable. You're like, <laughs> yeah, 
I'm going to take all the animals and have them piss into a tube for a year, and then I'm going to hang out with my son. I mean, no, this is going to suck. This is going to be the worst year of your life, no matter what. And it's a year, whereas this version only has seven days. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, you can sit in a sort of dark cube for a week. Come on. (laughs) For the rest of humanity, sure. Yeah, if you can either board this relative cruise liner for a year or go in this bumpy ride for seven days, I'd be like, give me the bumpy ride. Yeah, probably. I mean, I guess it depends on the cruise, but <laughs> that's Princess right. Cruises does do cruises that are almost a year. And only the what? like really, <gasps> yeah, only the really old retired people do it. Not that you have to be really old to be retired, but really old and in addition retired. Okay. Um, people seem to do them. Yeah, we've we've talked to some of them on our little cruises. That's amazing. Now that yeah, almost makes that's... me want to do it with Cara just so we'll be the odd ones out. <laughs> Yeah, there are some that are like, I want to say like 200 days. That's wild. I had no idea. I know. It's too much. It's too much. We can only play bingo for four days. I'm sorry. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) So next door, they have another little nook that you walk in called Rainbow Covenant. And there's this lovely little mural that they had someone paint in kind of a Egyptian relief style that's showing the covenant that God made with Noah after they exited the ark. After the ark lands, Mm -hmm. God's like, I won't send any more huge floods to wipe out humanity. I won't do that again. Yeah, so I- That's the covenant. I think it's even worth reading this. So here goes. From Genesis 8, 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and- Taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never <laughs> and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. I was curious about the line that said that Noah took some of all of the clean animals. To me, that makes it sound Mm. like he grabbed at least one of each type. I was looking at the list of the clean types and the birds that they have on the first deck. Because I was just curious, like, how many animals are we talking about? And there's... 21 kinds of clean mammals and they didn't separate out clean birds but there were like 179 living birds of 68 that are now extinct so we're talking like over 200 varieties of birds and then additional like flightless birds on top of that so my thought from that verse and their calculation here is that this was like an epic roast on this altar that was like dozens of animals at least oh 50 animals that he was burning to god and god comes down like smells like oh this smells so good oh my god so wait so then the whole thing with go and get two of every kind and put them on this boat do you think that was partly just for his own like dinner in a year well that's why he wanted noah to bring seven of certain types of animals so those could be sacrificed Oh, my God, this guy sucks so bad. (laughs) Yeah, God came down, smelled it, and he's like, ah, I love this smell. This is so good. I swear I won't do this to you again. My God. 
we guy get... just needs a snack. <laughs> right. He could have saved a few of the animals and just burnt them for himself. But Yeah. Or like create the taste of meat for yourself because you're God. Yeah. Or the smell of smoke if you like yeah. it that much. Totally. Yeah. So a few other things come from this. This is also where he gives humans the right to eat meat. This is where permission comes. Oh, great. Every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky will be afraid of you. Every creeping thing on the ground and all the fish of the sea are given into your hands. Just as I previously gave you all the green plants for food, I now give you all the things. Every moving and living thing shall be food for you, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. All right. He also introduces capital punishment. He says, "Great, I will demand. Two two. I will demand an account for your life. Whoever spills man's blood by man, shall his blood be spilled? Because in the image of God, he made man." All right. Two extremely bad ideas. And of course, we get the rainbow as a sign that this will never happen again. So they're just showing us those two things, like. Obviously, we know these are good, eating meat and capital punishment. Well, these are just things that God kind of instituted in this moment as he made his Noahic covenant. But they don't feel like they need to apologize for it. No. In other signs, they're like, no, oh, I right. know this sounds bad, but let me explain why it's actually good. Yeah, not In this for... case, they're like, no, these are good. Not we all for know these, these two. are good. Yeah. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. Answers in Genesis also seems to take a stance on the rainbow that... Sure, rainbows existed before this. It's just God's establishing a significance. I remember being taught that this was the first rainbow that ever occurred. Mm, yeah, me too. I mean, and I didn't even go to Sunday school oh, as a, okay. like, you know, I only discovered Jesus as an early teen, but I remember that. Okay. It's always interesting to hear the little takeaways that people have, because all it takes is one Sunday school teacher to utter something at you at an impressionable mm. time, and then that forever gets tied to your reading of the Bible and the, yeah. that story. Or anything, yeah. Your, right. Your whole view as a human. Yeah, yeah. Your view on animals in general and your attitude towards them. Yes, exactly. All right. So, as you follow me down this long hallway, next we get to... The Voyage of a Book, Personal Stories of Taking the Bible Around the World. This is an exhibit put together by the Museum of the Bible. Okay, Museum of the Bible. So okay, I, cool. I know they have a, I think they have a prominent location in Washington, D.C. So they have kind of like a little exhibit here on the third floor of the Ark. Why not? Okay. Yeah, sounds cool. I was into it. Most of the displays are organized around parts of the world. So they have they have an exhibit early on that says Jerusalem. You walk up and you see a Torah with, you know, the Yad, the silver pointer on it and like the container that the scroll would go inside of. Okay, very nice. So it's like how the Bible looks in these different places? Yeah, well, stories about how the Bible got to those places. So they talk about various pioneers who spread the word, people who were martyred for having tried to like share the Bible in English. So you have like Miles Coverdale. He's not someone I was familiar with, but apparently he created the Great Bible, which was the first complete Bible in English. And that's only because William Tyndale, who I definitely have heard of, there's a missionary organization named after him. He had translated the New Testament, but then he was executed while he was working on the Old Testament. 
because mm. this was super controversial at the time. Like, no, the Bible's only supposed to be in Latin. Oh, right. Those people. That's right. Yeah. John Rogers is another figure. They're talking about like people who are missionaries. They're also showing... At first, I was getting all excited because they had like these very early Bibles and fragments, but it turns out most of these were reproductions. So they have this Syriac New Testament. It's a reproduction. Looks cool from the 1600s. They've got this one. I was like, ooh, 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 is this like, wow, it's the Gospel Codex fragment. Oh, wow, it's the one from Oxyrhynchus. It's an Egyptian papyrus from the third century, but it's a Mm -mm. reproduction that they made. But still, cool to see it and kind of the size and what it looks like. They've got some Bodmer papyri, also like from the third century AD. This one I'm looking at is part of first and second Peter and Jude. They've got another Bodmer papyri that has parts of Psalm on it that is dated to the late 200s AD. So these are some of the, you know, earliest manuscripts and you get to see what they look like. That's all cool. Yeah, various other icons. It was interesting. Yeah, it's pretty in there. They're talking about like missionaries today who face persecution. So they were showing all of these like Chinese translations of the Bible and various gospel works Mm. that missionaries smuggle into China because of course they do. Did you ever get any kind of Chinese scare propaganda in church as a kid? Oh, totally. Yeah, like... Yeah, me too. Just a little, but it feels like your world would have gotten it a lot. Yeah, the stories of people who were converted and they worshipped secretly, but then they were exposed, but they refused to deny Jesus and they were killed as a result. Yeah. Lots of stories Uh, like that. Maybe some of those are true, I don't know. But yeah, it was definitely told to us like the greatest sacrifice Mm -hmm. possible and I remember one time being in church and this intern was giving a talk and I think maybe he had pitched to the pastor that he wanted to have someone run in and be like you guys all need to get the fuck out of here like get someone to make us scared and think that terrorists were taking over Mm. and he had been told like no you can't do that the reason that I think this might have been what happened is that he was giving a talk and he was like How crazy would it be if people walked through the doors right now Mm. and they were like, you can't be worshiping God. (laughs) You know, wouldn't that be okay? Like, and and imagine if like, what if some of the other interns like me did it and, but we had like hoods on, so you didn't know it was us. You'd probably be really scared for a while, right? Oh, geez. Um, Yeah, yeah. And we're all like, yeah, that would be scary and isn't happening. Well, now we we see the process that led to that story that Alice Gretchen was telling about the people coming and grabbing her and forcing her to declare her fidelity to Jesus. Totally. Oh, my God. Yeah, I can't believe I didn't put that together at the time. But yes, of course. Yep. This was kind of fun. There was a like a whole reproduction of a polar ice cap and Ernest Shackleton's ship from the early 1900s voyage when he was trying to visit the Antarctic. Uh, So this was a fun little story. Apparently, Queen Alexandra gave him two Bibles that he took. Oh, yeah, that was the Endurance. I think they actually just found it not too long ago. Anyways, Uh so it was a failed expedition, and they had to sort of escape with their lives. And apparently, Shackleton grabbed the Queen's dedication page from one of the two Bibles and one page from Job and discarded the rest. But one of the sailors went and grabbed the rest and like protected it with his life, essentially. And the Bible made it back from the Antarctic. Wow. (laughs) 
And yeah, then they talk about taking the Bible to various other people around the world. You know, that's what they're all about, missionaries. So that mm-hmm. was the little museum of the Bible. Cool. Okay, I think you would have liked this final section against the bow end of the boat, the barge. Mm. Uh, so as Well, I'm I'm sure I would, but you know what I really love? Well, you're probably going to talk about bras. Yes, I love them. Well, Carrie, what if there was a bra that made your boobs look and feel amazing, but was mm. also actually super comfortable all day long? I know what you're thinking. That's got to be a myth, just like this flood myth. But no, <laughs> actually, that exists. And it's called Third Love. And actually, that bra and loungewear company has sponsored this episode. Amazing. It all comes together. I know. I didn't expect it. And there are such things as bad bras. Oh, absolutely. They there absolutely are. They dig into your yes, boobs. They, poke they you. dig into your back. Ugh. They have annoying tags. Do they ever like affect your posture? Like I'm wearing a bra that's messing with my posture. Oh, interesting. Um, I haven't noticed one that messes with my posture, but there are other ones that I feel like helps my posture. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I would say third love, if anything, would help more than harm because mm-hmm. some bras are too heavy too. Oh, third loves yeah. oh, are yeah. nice and light. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Adding weight to something already you're trying to remove- wait from right right exactly this is good timing we actually just got a shipment from third love today a new bra and oh, really? two bottoms yeah for uh nice for my wife my wife uh she like them oh yeah i was looking at them like look printed right on the on the fabric they don't have a separate label so smart i felt those no slip straps <laughs> and uh I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, I can see yeah. why they don't fall off your shoulder. Yeah. Isn't this the reaction you want your husband to have to your lingerie? <laughs> well, third so love spent years, <laughs> spent years designing bras for your body. They make over 60, over 60, you guys. It could be 61, yes. could be 62. <laughs> Over 60 sizes and even invented half cups. I don't know if that's true, but they at least sell them. So you always get the perfect fit, which means you'll always look great and feel great. I love my third love bras. They really are some of my faves. Oh, am I wearing? I think I'm wearing one. I think I'm wearing their sports bra, which is quite nice. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can get active. Yeah. You want to get active? You can. You want to not? That's fine. This you do is, that too. This is the kind of covenant that you can rely upon. <laughs> you know, and your bra can change at least six times throughout your life on average. Whoa. Yeah. So you can't just rely on like, well, I know what my size is. That's why it's really helpful that Third Love has a virtual fitting room. You can have them help you. They'll ask you the right questions to maybe try a new bra that might fit better. So... Never get stuck with a bad bra again. You get 60 days to return these suckers if you don't like it. Ditch bad bras. Get a better one that makes you look and feel great. Upgrade your bra and get 20% off your first order at thirdlove.com slash oh no. That's 20% off your first order today at thirdlove.com slash oh no. Since the dawn of time, man has dreamed of bringing life back from the dead. From Orpheus and Eurydice to Frankenstein's monster, resurrection has long been merely the stuff of myth, fiction, and fairy tale. 
until now. Actually, we still can't bring people back from the dead. That would be crazy, but the Dead Pilot Society podcast has found a way to resurrect great dead comedy pilots from Hollywood's finest writers. Every month, Dead Pilot Society brings you a reading of a comedy pilot that was sold and developed but never produced, performed by the funniest actors from film and television. How does Dead Pilot Society achieve this miracle? The answer can only be found at MaximumFun.org. Hello, dreamers. This is Evelyn Denton, CEO of the only world-class, fully immersive theme resort, Steeplechase. You know, I've been seeing more and more reports on the blogs that our beloved park simply isn't safe anymore. Mur murdered them? I'm gonna wreck it. They say they got mugged by brigands in the fantasy kingdom of Ephemera, or hijacked by space pirates in Infinitum. I mean, I could have a knife. My papa said that I needed to do a crime. Friends, I'm here to reassure you that it's all part of the show. These criminals were really just overzealous staff trying to make things a little more magical for our guests. We're just as safe as we've always been. This isn't a county fair, dreamers. This is Steeplechase. The Adventure Zone. Every Thursday at MaximumFun.org. Okay, so now we're walking into the bow of the Ark, and it's time for us to really start laying on the gospel message heavy-like, because... Yes, you know, this is why we're here. Yeah, right, right. Why do this unless you can save some souls? Because everybody coming here is not a Christian and just needs to hear the message of Noah's Ark, <laughs> and then they will want to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's just funny imagining people getting anywhere close to this building without <laughs> already having an opinion about God and the animals. But okay, so this exhibit is called Searching for Truth, and it's written in this comic book font because we're going to be walking through a giant comic book. Hey, so kind cool. I would say it's like a chick track just in that it's something that's supposed to give you, I'm trying to be charitable, a relatable message <laughs> that will drive you to salvation. But it's not like a chick track in the artwork. It's, you know, like a modern comic. You know, it's well drawn. Yeah. So you're saying it's like it's going to be fictional, but it's going to be sort of representational fiction. Yeah. And... I was trying not to say it, but, it, you know, it's manipulative. It's trying to, uh -huh, sure. uh, leading you directly to a conclusion. So mm -hmm. we have these three students at a university. Their names are Andre, Rio, and Gabby. And Andre is a Christian, and he's got these two friends who just don't seem to be subscribed to anything in particular. So they've got, you know, speech bubbles on each panel as they're walking around and they're talking about their world religions class. Andre's the only one who has really set beliefs. And he says, I believe the Bible is true and that Jesus is the only way to heaven as they enter the lecture hall. But then they're sitting listening to this professor who's saying the Bible is full of contradictions and the earth isn't 6,000 years old and the animals couldn't fit on Noah's Ark because, of course, he would say that. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is so how they get you. Yeah. And they're all chatting to each other. Well, hey, let's talk after class about this. Andre is saying, I have more to say about the Bible and why I believe it's true. So when they get outside, he tells them. Well, it's the Word of God. It's unique. It was written by over 40 different authors in three languages and over 1,500 years, and yet it proclaims a consistent message and has no errors. That impresses Gabby. Big claim. She's thinking the way you are. You said the Bible doesn't have errors. How could that be since it was written by people and people make lots of mistakes? So he pulls up his phone, and he's very clearly looking at answers in Genesis.com, and he says... 
Well, here, let me show you one of my favorite websites that addresses objections to the Bible. Boy, that's so true. That is what Answers in Genesis does. It answers objections. It doesn't raise its own evidence for its Mm -hmm. case. It takes objections as the starting point. Yeah, something we encounter a lot. I would say that's also Mm -hmm. the case with the anti-vaccine movement and with the flat earth movement. Mm -hmm. They trade in aberrations, oddities, anomalies, questions, just asking questions. So he gives them a little more of his spiel about the Bible and prophecy that has been fulfilled. So later on, you have Rio and Gabby, they're alone without their proselytizing friend in a coffee shop. And they're debating, well, what if he's right about this? But the professor told us that the Bible's just like a copy of a copy of a copy. They don't even know if they have the original message with the Bible. And then Rio says, well, check this out. That website Andre mentioned has a video discussing this topic. So I love this because this is how humans talk. <laughs> right, yeah, very natural language. So mm-hmm. as you move from that panel, there's a video display in the exhibit, and our old friend Tim Chafee is going to— Ah, uh, here he is. He's going to tell us a little bit about why the Bible is so reliable. Reliable. Okay. All right, here we go. I'm going to play this video for you. And it's on their website. If you go to— arkencounter.com slash beans, it will take you to this video. (laughs) Okay. Have you ever heard someone claim that the Bible's been through so many changes and so many revisions that we really can't know what the original message was? Let's use some coffee beans to illustrate a major problem with that argument. And what we're gonna do is look at the manuscript evidence for some ancient writings compared to the manuscript evidence for the New Testament. That is, we're gonna be looking at the handwritten copies made before the days of the printing press for each of these works. For example, for Tacitus, he wrote his famous work called The Annals around the year AD 100. And the earliest copy we have for that comes from about 750 years later. So there's a 750 year gap between when it was written and our earliest copy. And how many copies do we have? Just two. So let's put two beans in this cup to represent those manuscripts. For Plato's dialogues, there's a 1200 year gap and we have just seven copies. For the histories by Herodotus, there's a 1300 year gap with just nine copies. And we have 10 copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars after a 900 year gap. Now, very few people question whether we have the original message of these writings, yet they constantly attack the Bible on this point. And yet the manuscript evidence we have for these is so minimal and the gap between when they were written and when their earliest copies come from is enormous. So what about the New Testament? Well, it was written in the first century AD and the earliest manuscript evidence we have for it comes within 50 years of that time. Now, how many copies do we have? Well, there are nearly 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts and they average about 450 pages each. Looks like I should have used a bigger cup. But you know what? That's just the Greek manuscripts. When we count the other languages like Latin, Coptic, and Armenian, there's another 20,000 manuscripts. As I mentioned earlier, critics and skeptics rarely question whether we have the original message of these writings, and yet they frequently attack the Bible on this point. You know, it really just shows their bias. But when we look at the evidence before us, we see that their arguments really don't amount to a hill of beans. 
Oh, snap. Well, really fun because I was a philosophy major in undergrad, and I can tell you yeah. quite a bit of disagreement about whether we ah. have the original. Yeah. <laughs> Plato's original ideas. Yeah. I mean, especially the writings about Socrates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, also, none of those make claims like God wrote <laughs> this and it tells you how to live your life. You're way ahead of me. Yep. <laughs> That's one huge difference is that when you hear that Julius Caesar gave a speech, okay, fine. That's not that extraordinary of a claim. But when you're telling me that he came back from the dead, yeah, I may believe that was written. That doesn't necessarily add credence to it having actually happened. I mean, this does make one interesting point, which is like there was a blooming Bible industry Mm -hmm. early in the age of the Bible. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And for a really good answer to this, there's a great video called Oldest Bible Manuscripts by Useful Charts. It's a channel on YouTube. Creator of it is Matt Baker. And I'll show you this chart that he put together. He was walking through the oldest copies of the Bible that we have, both Old Testament and New, and giving context around them. And he had seen many arguments, like the one that Tim Chafee gave in that video on the Ark, talking about the many thousands of Bible manuscripts. Sure, great, but they're papering over a lot, because if we look at how many manuscripts we have, there are zero that we have that are actually from the first century. We don't have any of the original documents. And then Mm -hmm. we only have four that are dated with any certainty to the second century, and none of them are complete even books. They're just like little fragments that we have. Oh, cool. Wow. It's a little piece of Matthew or second Peter or what have you. Yeah. And then going into the third century, then we have 50 manuscripts of which are included a few complete books, but again, not a complete New Testament. Then combining the 4th and 5th centuries, we get 100 manuscripts that are still extant, and that includes four complete New Testaments. And then for the next like 500 years, you can add an additional 350 manuscripts, but he's including over 5,000 that are from after 1,000 CE. And of course, of course, Christianity had spread far and wide by then. Of course, there's many different manuscripts and many different languages. Yeah, the thing got copied a lot to the exclusion and often destruction of other competing texts. So, Right, um, Christianity's popular. That's all that tells me. Exactly, yeah. So it almost feels intentionally dishonest to me, the way they stated the Well, yeah, I mean, he's not even Googling like his Plato example. He's not engaging with his own counterexamples, you know? You highlighted the other major point, which is that it's a different type of story, too. We're talking about someone being raised from the dead and performing miracles. It's also interesting to think that this all is going to have to do partly with just where Jesus falls in human history, how Mm -hmm. close that is to the written word and then to the printing press. Like, probably anybody positioned at exactly his place and time who Mm -hmm. happened to be a small religious leader might have pulled this off. Yeah, exactly. And he doesn't make a comparison to the Quran, which might be a more apt analogy, though 600 years later, within the same time period, like 160 years after the supposed origin of the story, for the New Testament, you have four fragments. For the Quran, you have 60 and much more extensive, which also tells you Jesus could have been placed a lot better in the timeline of human history. Any time later would have given us better contemporary records. (laughs) It's true. I didn't notice until today that the 
big cup that he pours all those beans into and over has an arc on it. How appropriate. Oh, look at that. A flood of beans. Hey-oh. So that's a little pause in the comic story. But now that we've learned about Bible manuscripts from my guide, Tim Chafee, now we're back to kind of the emotional manipulation. You're seeing that Gabby, who's only mentioned once for a second, I thought they hadn't named the woman, which would be hilarious. (laughs) In one later panel, they finally called her Gabby. Anyways, they show her with her dad and him raising her and loving her and being wonderful, but then he dies. And so she's now wrestling with the question of, well, God, if you're good, why did you let my dad die? And then they show like a scene with her and her dad in the hospital where he says, Gabby, don't blame God for this. So now she's in the library. She's thinking about it. Well, It says here the Bible is not technically a science or history textbook, but it is accurate whenever it addresses these subjects because she's back on (laughs) presumably AnswersInGenesis.com. This is like her sole research point (laughs) now that uh, Andre's told her about it. So then uh, this is another screen. So I don't know if she's seeing this on the website or if we're just being given these little factoids, but they're giving us scientific facts that show a the bible is true and b the earth isn't very old so they're using examples like short-term comets they feel that's consistent with a short earth talking about a stone that mentions Pilate being governor of judea during the time of christ they talk about the earth's magnetic field i looked into this one they're saying what how does this connect because the earth's magnetic field is decaying right now at like five percent per year They're saying Uh there's no way it could be older than 20,000 years. But I looked into this, and the first part is true, but the conclusion, nobody is saying that. It's just part of a larger Uh trend of waxing and waning and occasional reversal of the Earth's magnetic field over like 3.5 billion years. So They must be thinking like... If it reverses, it explodes or something. Right, or that it goes back to a certain amount of intensity and no farther. But that's weird because they themselves, whenever they need a special exception to some other scientific rule, they'll say, well, things change over time. So why are you assuming that it's always consistent? Mm, That's true. That's true. Works against them in this case. This was interesting. They have the Nazareth inscription. I hadn't heard of this. It was an edict of Emperor Claudius from the 40s A.D., And the way they describe it, they said that it demonstrates the Christian belief in Christ's resurrection spreading through the Roman Empire. I looked this up. It doesn't mention Jesus. It just is an edict against, like, grave robbing and against disrespecting graves. So it could could have very likely been from somewhere else about something else, a different situation. They have radiocarbon dating there. That's a favorite talking point of creationists saying that, well, there's been samples of wood that have been said to be millions of years old, but they were dated at less than 10,000 years old. Well, yeah, radiocarbon dating isn't made to extend that far. You use other dating methods when you're that far out on time scale. Radiocarbon dating yeah, well, is only accurate and why for are tens you of accepting, thousands. Why are you accepting either of these? They're both too big for you. Right, right. But at least they want to say, we've introduced the doubt in the scientific narrative. Right, right. These scientists appear to disagree if you don't understand the nature of both tests. Mm -hmm, Exactly. They mention an inscription, the uh, Tel Dan inscription uh, that was found that refers to King David. And this was legitimately important. Before that, 
there was a lot of scholarly consensus that King David might not even be a historical character. This was found on a 9th century BCE stone slab and mentions the House of David. So, okay, yeah, significant. Because otherwise, there's so little in archaeology that leads us to believe he even existed. Uh, There's still, of course, a lot of debate over how large his kingdom was. And in this little video display, they're just jumping back and forth. There's no real rhyme or reason. They're, they're just including anything that either increases your confidence in the Bible or decreases your confidence in scientific opinion. Uh, they also mention that soft tissue has been found in dinosaur fossils, and you know that shouldn't be possible according to what we've learned about fossils. Therefore, these fossils have to be much newer. Uh, but of course, they're glossing over the very interesting science being done looking at what can be preserved in fossils for millions of years. And I found in a Smithsonian article where Mary Schweitzer, who is one of the primary researchers doing this work to dissolve fossils and see what trace proteins and red blood cells she can find. It says, she's horrified that some Christians accuse her of hiding the true meaning of her data. They treat you really bad, she says. They twist your words and they manipulate your data. And she herself is a Christian and and her work doesn't at all question the chronology of these fossils. It's just really interesting new information about what can be found inside of fossils. And then we go back to the comic, and now we see Gabby. She's struggling with her faith and her belief and what she's learning about the Bible and what she's learning at school. She's at a party, but she's alone on the couch. Yeah, she's sad. She's alone at the party. What am I doing here? This isn't working. And everyone's drinking around her. Yeah, they're throwing their bottles on the ground. Yeah, boy, that back section of the room is really (laughs) happening. (laughs) Well, she wants out, and so she leaves with Rio, the other non-believer guy and he's still drinking as he gets shit he's about to get behind the wheel of that car to this uh race car yeah this kind of like red muscle car oh this is bad you know where this is going he's driving too fast she's saying slow down i don't want to die and he runs them off the road they crash fudge oh no the emts come now we're at the university hospital They survived. Phew. Oh, both of them. Okay, cool. But now Andre comes to visit them and says, the nurse said it's a miracle you weren't killed in that wreck. God must have been watching out for you. And Rio says, God, do you think everything is about God? Why didn't he stop me from getting in an accident? And why do you think he's so good? You believe he killed everyone with a flood? (laughs) This is how I'd behave from my hospital bed. (laughs) Yeah, again, the way people talk. Andre says, if I could answer every objection you had against God in the Bible, would you trust him? And Rio admits, I don't know, probably not. Then, Then can I take a few minutes to explain why the Bible is so important to me? You mentioned the flood, which is a vivid reminder that God judges sin, but God is also loving and merciful. The parts of the Bible that we might call bad news are important for understanding the good news. Let me illustrate this by talking about some of the doors mentioned in the Bible. (laughs) Not the doors again. (laughs) These doors highlight God's love and mercy throughout history. And Rio says, sure, whatever. (laughs) Oh, my God, I'm with Rio. Never mind. This is totally how I'd react from my hospital bed. So we've walked through this before, but now it's in the voice of Andre. He's showing us the door to the ark. And then the door at the Passover with the lamb's blood on it. And then the doors of the temple and the door that the shepherd sits in to protect his sheep. Ooh, that's pretty. 
And the most important door of all, not a door, a metaphor. (laughs) Not a door. Uh, Jesus dying on the cross. Of course, the metaphorical door. We needed a perfect substitute to die in our place, you know, because, of course, that's the rules and God can't break the rules that he set up. And then here we go. Final door that is a door. The stone being rolled away from the tomb. (laughs) Almost a door. (laughs) Almost a door. Very close. (laughs) And then they leave us, of course, with John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Some people might not know what that is. Okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then, For those who didn't grow up in church, that's like everybody's favorite Bible verse to the point that if you say it's your favorite, it's like, all right, all right, Jerry. <laughs> yeah. You didn't memorize anything. Sure, John 3.16. That's the one that people hold up during football games, you know, that you yeah. see reference to everywhere. And then Romans 6.23, want to read that one? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Romans 5, 8, but God shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Actually, Romans 5, 8, I think that was the verse that I chose as my favorite verse in my high school yearbook. Nice. And then Acts sixteen thirty one. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So there we go. They've laid out the important, usually the Romans road, but we have a couple other uh, books there that you show the potential believer. And so Andre's telling them in the hospital all these things about Jesus dying for them, and that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, Romans 10, 9, and 13. And so now we see Gabby, uh, looks like she died because she's like running through the door of heaven and embracing her father. This must be many years later. Interesting. Or maybe she's just envisioning that's what'll happen. Because it looks like in the next panel, she's alive and checking her phone. Yeah. <laughs> she. <laughs> that's what brought her back to Earth. Maybe that's like she's maybe hugging someone who already believed and already went to heaven. Oh, yeah. Her dad who yeah. already believed, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe she just knows that she will get to be reunited with him. With him. Yeah. So she comes to believe again and they still have a group chat going on. And so Andre suggests Bible study Tuesday night at eight. <laughs> and Gabrielle says, I'll be there. But Rio, we can see he looks sad and he's not going to go because... Yeah, he doesn't want to go. He did not believe. You don't want to be like Rio. You want to be like Gabby. And yep, little salvation message. And then they've got those free little booklets like the one I gave you that has the story of the doors. Yes. So you're allowed to take one. There's a bunch of them there in the basket. It says, please take one. Extra copies and bulk prices are available for purchase in the gift shop. Thank you. So they don't want you grabbing like a handful and walking out with them. And after we leave that exhibit, then... There's just a few other interesting exhibits hanging around. There's this true history of the world, and there's a gigantic scrolling timeline that goes back to 6,000 years ago and up to not present because it was created by Sebastian C. Adams. It's called the Adams Synchronological Chart or Map of History. He died in 1898, so it was made sometime before then. And he was a state. Cool looking. He was a state senator in Oregon. That's interesting. 
Yeah, it's very cool looking, actually. I would have bought the- I think you rolled this out on my floor? I have the smaller version underneath it, the big book of history. That one's more for kids. That one I could fit in my backpack and luggage, so I bought it. But unfortunately, Adam's one is too large. So there we go. If someone wants to buy me this, this is a good gift. Okay, hang on. I'm writing it down. (laughs) Adam's- Synchronological chart. Rolls right off the tongue. No one else do this. Don't be weird. Which reminds me, I had befriended a guy who was working for the Ark. Young guy. We'll call him Daniel. And he was just someone who would kind of stand there for hours and point people in the right direction or say, oh, this is the next part of the exhibit. Anyways, I'd stopped to talk to him and we were comparing photos that we'd taken of the Ark and started texting each other. So we had a little text friendship. While I was there. Yeah, nice guy. And so he told me one day when I came up and I was taking pictures of this sign that there had been some Russian tourists who came and were very upset that like some important political thing in Russia had been misrepresented on that old map from the 1800s. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they're like, no, this is very controversial. This is like a ideological thing that you said it. I took a picture of it later, but I'm still not 100% sure what the point was. It was just a little fun bit of drama. And he was telling them, oh, sorry, I can't really change it, but I'll share your note with the management. Yeah. Uh, you took a picture, though? I did. Of that piece of it? Yeah. Oh, cu- I'm curious if you find it. It would be included in these photos I'm showing you right now, but I know I took a closer picture of it later. Yeah, this is an intricate chart. My goodness. So I was sending Daniel some of my favorite pictures I had taken of the Ark, and he was sending me ones that he had taken, like when it was covered in snow, which was really cool. Aww, yeah. That's cool. I know. I, I Have keep, you sent him our episodes? I haven't. I keep meaning to write him back. I don't know. I keep trying to think of questions he might be able to answer for me. I thought, like, should I have him answer the POD thing? I don't know. If- oh, I want to know about the animals who used to be on the Ark. Oh, okay. Oh, hold on. Let me text him right now. Okay. Yeah. I want to know, like, how long did they have them? How many did they have? And what's sort of the story with them not being on there anymore? Okay. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I'll ask him. Ask him if he wants to come on the show. Yeah, see if we get some more follow-up questions. And that's it. Then you can either proceed back down the ramp that's right there or go to the elevators that are off in the other direction. But we've done it. We have- They don't have you walk through big doors? Uh, no. Because the big door is on the second floor, and you can take a picture next Mm. to it, but they only open it exceedingly rarely during very like special circumstances Uh. or events. And there's a big ramp leading up to it, but yeah, it's not for public access. Boring. I know, right? So, yep, you get to proceed. They even have a little exit through the gift shop sign, which is, you know, chef's kiss. (laughs) Okay, so just a little more arc left. We've visited the boat. We've seen it from stem to stern, bottom to top. And we've analyzed it. And we think this may not have happened. That's my takeaway. At this point, I don't know what else they could do to convince me, but it didn't work. But maybe if they gave you some more homeschooling info, you'd change your mind. You know what? I might. So, yeah, next time, let's go find out about teaching science from a biblical worldview. Hell yeah. Let's find out about forensic hair microscopy and a few other <laughs> the hell that is. <laughs> a few other fun side classes that I had there. So, yeah. All right, more to come next week. Okay, great. Can't wait. All right, well, that's it for this episode. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. 
This episode was edited by Victor Figueroa. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. You can support this and all our investigations by going to MaximumFun.org forward slash join. Yes, please. And thank you, though. You know, we're getting awfully close to Max Fun Drive. So Max Fun Drive. Yeah. You know what? Maybe even I can't believe I'm saying this. Maybe even hold on for just a bit because it's going to be fun. It's going to be wild. And we've got some great stories to tell. Save up them bucks. Good stuff is coming. But in the meantime, you can still tell a friend. You can Mm -hmm. leave a positive review. There's so many ways to support us. You'd be surprised how effective leaving a positive review is. Helps other people find our show. Share it on social media. Paint it on your mailbox. Paint it above your door so that when the angel of death comes, he will listen to our (laughs) podcast and he'll be stuck listening to our episode so long he'll never get to kill you. He'll be distracted. He'll be entertained. He'll be educated. He's not going to bother taking you. (laughs) (laughs) And remember, from the 2015 Nova special, Secrets of Noah's Ark. An ancient tablet may hold the answer. I took one look at it, and to my astonishment, I realized that this was another retelling of the flood story. Far older than the Bible, The text describes a vessel very different from Noah's. In the tablet from 700 BCE, a flood story that closely resembled Noah. In both stories, the flood hero releases three sets of birds to find dry land. And both offer a sacrifice that their god smells. The two texts were somehow strongly wedded together. They had a literary relationship, one derived from the other. Over a thousand years, several versions of the Babylonian flood myth emerged. Could the parallels between all these Mesopotamian flood myths and Noah's story be merely coincidence? But in one of the earliest Babylonian stories, the Ark description is incomplete. It says the Ark you are to build, dot, 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 be equal, dot, 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 and then it's broken. Because the tablet is missing a piece, features of the Babylonian Ark were a mystery. It would be almost a century before a key clue would emerge. As you wade through this funny script, you cannot deny that this was the idea. It was a round boat. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.